the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to Machine Icon Conscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guests, come visit us at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H and consider throwing us a buck a month. Today, our guest is John Protevi, who has written a work called Edges of the State, published in 2019 by University of Minnesota Press. But uh, we, we're really happy to have you here today. And we're talking about your 2019 Edges of the State, published with the University of Minnesota Press. And I forget the name of the series it appears in, but we were talking a little bit about this series where it's kind of an intense, concise foray. You said yeah. 20,000 words, no footnotes. It's right. uh, It really is. It really is something that I read it in one sitting. I was so just yeah. absorbed in it. Yeah. Well, the series is called Forerunners, okay. colon, Ideas First, and it's exactly as it says, uh, 20,000 words, and so it can be followed up by a larger book, so were I to write a larger book, which I will have to think about when I retire, but it would be at the kind of intersection of philosophy and anthropology, question of human nature, and so that's this book wanted to get to the kind of core ideas in there. It also is a culmination of a course on the evolution and biology and morality that I've taught for many years here at LSU in the Honors College. So I want to give a shout out to the Ogden Honors College folks for letting me teach a nice 15 to 20 person seminar every fall. And so over the years, I've developed um, I've developed that course. This is kind of later iteration of it. Earlier, I did more stuff on empathy and uh, mm-hmm this stuff, but this this is the evolution part of it. But yeah, so it, I, I looked at it as a, I tried to position myself to address a readership of scientifically informed philosophers and theory-interested anthropologists. And so uh, we'll see if it comes out. I, I've given talks like this to the American Association of Geographers. So I have a number of talks out there about on human nature and, uh, and evolution. So the main course, I think, was this uh, evolution in biology and morality. The prior book was in 2013, so there was a number of years where I didn't do much. I, did, I gave talks and wrote right. articles, but I was the chair of the department from 2014 to 2017, and that took a lot of time. Coming out of that, that I didn't. I thought I wanted to publish this uh, this book before I tackled the. Uh, if I ever do this, uh, intersection of philosophy and anthropology, which would be fun. There's a school of German philosophical anthropology from the 1920s and 30s that would have to get a chapter. Mm-hmm. So what's his name? Plessner. I forget his first name. But uh, a number of, of folks in, in that area, then I would probably do something on Levi-Strauss and um, 
the mm-hmm. new ontological turn people, so Descala and um, Viveris de Castro. So there's a number of things that I would like to do if I could ever sit down and write this, uh, you know, properly book one thing of a of a hundred thousand words. I know that Cooper and I were thrilled with the engagement with anthropology. You know, uh, we have in this past year together studied Mose, studied Claster, and obviously Claster is important for Deleuze and Guattari in both Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus, although they they do kind of change their their tune a little bit and fault him somewhat on perhaps a lingering evolutionism, which you also kind of point out with keeping the term primitive and and struggling (laughs) with its place and also I really thought it was very crystal clear your point in going through Claster was to come out that he still kind of struggles with how do we get, if if there were anti-state societies that had these mechanisms, you know, cordoning off the chieftain in a certain way so, so as not to allow him to accumulate power, how then does the state become an actuality? And that's something that he, he can't really... That's something they struggle with. And and sadly, you know, he died prematurely in a car accident. So we never know if he would continue to struggle with that throughout his life. The guy who really helps me there is Guillaume Cibertin Blanc, who's a French philosopher. Um, This is his book. The English translation is State and Politics. And that's with, um, I forget who that's with. But anyway, that that really helps explain the Clastra, the Liz and Guattari angle. So, I thought that was a natural pairing then with mm-hmm. James C. Scott, and the uh, who was kind of a renegade anthropologist, geographer, political scientist, so devoted a chapter to him as well. Definitely enjoyed seeing him pop up. That's a book I had uh, ping Taylor about us potentially covering. And like he said, I've, we've also been, uh, in addition to anti-Oedipus, we've been looking at symbolic exchange and death. So that kind of drove our forays into both Mos and Clasters. And I uh, just want to say I very much enjoyed the uh, context of the book um, as far as this this anthropological stuff, right. sort of meshing with philosophy, etc. has been something that I've really enjoyed deming out of anti-Oedipus and symbolic exchange and death. And I really enjoyed the clusters. And so this type of yep. thing has been heavily, heavily interesting to me and on my mind. Cool. Probably for yeah. the last, what, six, seven months or so. This is like the perfect sort of we're timing. Your, Not only perfect timing, yeah. but perfect yeah. subject matter for us to dive into with you. We're your ideal audience. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One of the real discoveries for me was Rousseau, whom I had always read lightly, but never got around to it. My wife is a 17th and 18th century French literature specialist. Oh, okay. So she always tells me to read Emile. I have never had the. It's a big book. To tackle the 800 pages or whatever. Yes. But I finally sat down and really got into the the political writings, so the first and second discourse and mm-hmm. then the uh, social contract. And uh, yeah, it's it's great stuff. And I think there's uh, – Levi Strauss says that he's the father of the social sciences. And so it's a natural pairing. Lots of people you know, will juxtapose Hobbes and, um, and Rousseau, I, I think, with kind of bad readings of both of them. Uh, um, Another shout out I should give is to Grant McCall and Carl Wiederquist have a a wonderful book called Prehistoric Myths in 
what is it? Prehistoric myths in modern political philosophy. Prehistoric myths in modern political philosophy. Edinburgh Press, 2017. That's available open access on the web, and that's a, a kind of anthropological and empirical philosophical. They pose the Hobbesian and Lockean preference for mm-hmm. state societies or property societies against non-state egalitarian communal property, uh, private property versus communal property. And they say, well, it's an empirical question. Is it the case that people in non-state societies are lead or subject to violence more than folks in, in state societies? And that's picked up by uh, you know Stephen Pinker in The Better Angels of Our Nature. And that was highly debated in the anthropological literature. Going back through that and teaching this course, there's a long debate for many, many years now about the extent of uh, pre-state warfare. Is there a continuity from chimpanzee into group violence through pre-state or non-state intergroup conflict and uh, into state conflict? And so that's a big debate. There's people on both sides. And the empirical question of whether states are a good deal for people in terms of lowering violence, which would be the Hobbesian question. So mm-hmm. Riederquist and McCall just do an empirical thing and they raise you know severe doubts about that in some cases, you know, so then you get this kind of borderline of the failed state, mm-hmm. you know, like so Somalia. Said, so. But I don't know if you have to go to failed states. There's a lot of hidden structural violence in the United States. Mm-hmm. We're a failing state, but uh, we're not in that category yet, a failed state. That's tied in with a longstanding question about the uh, evolution of, um, just to finish up with Rita Christa McCall, they look at Locke and they say, is the material life of people in a private property society superior to that of a uh, communal property society? So Locke's argument for appropriation via the um, mixing of your labor with, uh, with nature. And so they also raise some empirical questions about that. That's a wonderful book. Really enjoyed that. And then, so that kind of opens up this open question about whether statification, for whom is statification a good deal? Mm-hmm. And certainly it's good. I mean, it's, it's a great deal for me, middle class professor, <laughs> but uh, I, don't want to, I don't want to universalize my experience. But to the question of pre-state warfare, which is the Hobbesian question, then as part of the Hobbesian question, is brought forth by Darwin, who posits as an explanation for the evolution of altruism, which is the capacity that people have to run risks for third-party folks. All mammals run risks for their direct progeny, right? So that's not a big deal. I was joked in my classes, you do not want to get in between the mama cat and mm-hmm. the kittens mm-hmm. before they've been before they've been weaned. After they've been weaned, the, the mama cat doesn't care. <laughs> she kicks them out. Their cats are pretty uh, tough about that. But before then, right? So that that's not an issue. Will people run risks for their direct descendants or brothers and sisters and so on? Mm-hmm. But for third parties, just to uphold a social pattern, to punish wrongdoers of a of a social rule that is not whose infraction doesn't plausibly affect you or your loved ones, at least in any kind of immediate case. That is a kind of evolutionary problem because that mm-hmm. would seem to have been if the unit of selection is individuals, then that, that would seem to be 
to have uh, been targeted over the years and been drummed out of the uh, out of the species. And so Darwin said, well, if you have group selection, which he allowed for, and you have intergroup violent intergroup conflict as a widespread prevalent pre-state selection pressure, then you could see that a group that had a, a proper balance of altruists and egoists would outcompete, that is, defeat in mm-hmm. battle, in wars, groups that were only altruist or only egoists. Mm-hmm. Egoists would run away, right. the altruists would take too much risk, so you need a balance of egoists and altruists. But you don't want, at the first sign of the battle going wrong, you don't want people making individual calculations and taking off. Neither do you want people who can't ever retreat, but they're so hyped up on the valor of their country that they jump, or their tribe, their band. So that's a big question. And then, as I said, there's a lot of anthropological work on whether, in fact, then, war was widespread enough selection pressure for it to be a part of the picture of how altruism evolved. Mm -hmm. If you deny that war was widespread enough, then you have to come up with some other explanations. Now, they define war as anonymous intergroup violence. Right. Because no one denies, the the non-universal war people don't deny that human beings have killed each other for a long time. Sexual jealousy, uh, just irritation with Mm -hmm. uh, other folks. And often, it seems, uh, some ethnographers will claim that you're going to get attempts to establish a bullying or alpha position will cause the, the group to get rid of that threat. So in order to maintain egalitarianism, the group will get together and take out the would-be bully or would-be alpha. Right. So no no one can deny violence, but can we, and no one wants to deny personal violence, but anonymous intergroup violence, was that widespread? So that's the question. And people debate, you know, do you have enough archaeological evidence? That was something that, in particular, Pinker was criticized by an anthropologist named uh, Brian Ferguson, who went through the list, uh, the, the evidence that Pinker used in Better Angels, Angels of Our Nature, traced it back to some other anthropology folks. And so there was a, there was a, a kind of technical argument that I, I have no capacity to adjudicate, but I can point people to that. That article. It's called Pinker's List. It's in a big book called War, Peace, and Human Nature. Big mm-hmm. So that was one thread that uh, I really mm-hmm. followed up on. And then so that crisscrossed with something I've done ever since the case studies in political affect in 2009. In fact, even in 2005, I was captured by the Katrina events in the full mm. spring, the Terry Schiavo event. And I had always, even earlier than that, been interested in the Columbine killing. So I had these three mm. case studies. And so I got into questions about how to overcome a inherent or widespread, at least, and easily replicated inhibition for close-range personal killing. So one of the, when you actually study techniques for enabling killing, you run across a guy named David Grossman. He does this kind of shoot first for police officers and uh, will let the psychologists demonstrate that you were in a rational fear of your life. But in any rate, there does seem to be, it's testified to in a lot of cases, difficulty with one-on-one close-range non-weapon mediated killing. 
doesn't mean people can't fight each other, mm-hmm. but it tends not to go to the to the kill. You can get non-weapon mediated killing if you've got five or six guys who curb stomp somebody, mm-hmm. then you can do that. And so there's there's ways of, of handling that. So in looking at military training techniques that get people, because they, they want to enable close range killing if they can. So there's lots of ways in which, you know, they want to enable killing. So distance becomes a, an important factor, all sorts of uh, weapons mediation. And um, at the end of the spectrum, you have the sniper, mm-hmm. uh, or even now the, the drone pilot. Right. Uh, and versus people who actually can kill at close range. So with, with human beings, there's no, it's never a, a universal, but it does tend to be on a population basis. Short of a lot of training, not many people can actually kill face-to-face with their bare hands. Right. Some people can, and with sufficient training, so on and so forth. So that got me into a whole uh, history of kind of military training and did on some uh, war dances as a, because uh, one, one way to overcome this inhibition is to get into this kind of berserker frenzy. Right. And that is not something that modern armies like because it's out of control. It doesn't mm-hmm. hurts unit efficiency and mm-hmm. hierarchy and bad public relations and so on and so forth. So uh, it tends to be uh, people they try to identify folks with those kind of tendencies and, and, and weed them out. But in other contexts, in kind of open range, hand-to-hand, relatively low, short distance kinds of open field battles, the berserker rage is a tried and true technique. So the various cultures have ways of getting people into that, into that state. So the Vikings are the most famous one, but there's lots and lots of at least indications that it might be a way of triggering a kind of mammalian deep prey reaction. Mm-hmm. Predators tend to be more cold-blooded, but prey, when cornered, will freak out. And so the berserker rage as a military tactic is the try to, they have to figure cultural and body politic ways to get people to trigger that prey reaction. To come back to that question then, if it were the case that there was a lot of pre-state warfare, and as seems to be the, the case, they would have used sort of open field, hand-to-hand, low technology warfare, in which the berserker rage would be a great technique. It seems hard to imagine that people who are able to do that also can turn that off and become right. egalitarians back right. in, their, in their band. So you, it's almost like the Plato's uh, guardian thing. Can you actually train someone to be fierce to their enemies and kind to their, uh, mm-hmm. to their kin? That seems to be, as a guy named Kim Sterelny raises that as a kind of psychological implausibility of the universal war, universal pre-state warfare position, that it would seem to be hard to turn that off, given that the kind of warfare that forgers would mm-hmm. undertake would be you know, low trajectory, spears, maybe some bows and arrows, but kind of pretty close range kind of stuff. Bow and arrow, you probably can't be in a berserker rage, but any kind of handheld weapon. So there's lots of stuff there. And then a third argument against widespread pre-state warfare would be that this hooks up with a great anthropologist, Richard Wrangham, who proposes a continuity thesis between Speaking roughly here, it's very technical stuff, but between chimpanzee intergroup violence and um, human violence, coalitionary mm-hmm. killing, he calls it. 
So the question then becomes, if that's an evolutionary adaptation such that you have a fitness advantage, if you are able to have a coalition of males who are able to uh, isolate and kill, as long as there's a numerical advantage such that the killing can be done with impunity, then that seems to be a bridge from the way chimpanzees do their intergroup uh, violence towards humans. So there's a couple of ways to attack that. Ferguson himself uh, is, picks up the line that a lot of what we've observed as chimpanzee intergroup violence is uh, caused by human intervention. So I thought that was interesting. Debate in there. Yeah. About that, I think he's coming out with a book, but I haven't. Uh, I've lost track of that. But anyway, that's that's a debate. But then you've got also the question about whether it is the case that in establishing a kind of killing zone between two bands, whether that actually helps the fitness. Right. Or doesn't it hurt it? So some folks will look at the chimpanzees and say that they're actually hurting their fitness because they're restricting their territory. And then they look at some ethnography of uh, contemporary foragers and they'll show that it does seem in some cases that it pays off because you have a wider territory to exploit if you were to engage in intergroup peacemaking opportunities. So that's where you you might get feasts Mm -hmm. and you might also then get a kind of ritualized competition in sport or insult competition and ways to... um, I need to do more work on that, but there's a whole debate in and around whether there is something, whether uh, there is ritual warfare, which is not full-on warfare and that's quite a a complicated thing but those tend to be the responses we don't have the archaeological evidence it's unclear that it really is a fitness advantage and the psychological implausibility uh, angle the fourth one i think is by a guy named raymond kelly and also sterelny as well would say that in particular cases the defensive advantage of knowing your territory Mm -hmm. as long as you have projectile weaponry can impose a cost on the invaders such that it would it wouldn't pay off so the, the diplomacy and would pay off better than so that, that's the field uh, as you say I, my, my job I think is to try to make contact both with the anthropologists and with the philosophers to try to talk about questions about social contract and states and this this idea of the Hobbesian idea that we're better off because the state of nature is so violent. It's we're better off even with authoritarian states. And um, that's part of the uh, stakes of the, of the book is to uh, work in that field. So I was uh, blathering on there to, uh, <laughs> Oh, this, that, this was wonderful. This was, this was great. It really crystallized the opening stakes of the work, especially when it comes to even just now when you were talking about, you know, wouldn't it be more beneficial to both groups if they could actually utilize the boundaries of their territory mm-hmm. without it having to always come to be a conflict? And right. that, gave, that gave a very clear notion literally to edges of the state, the title of the work. There was so much there that I, that was interesting about, I'm thinking of the next, or as a consequence of everything you laid out, this notion, for example, as you were saying about Hobbes, who obviously has a bias, right? Because, and Scott, you're foraying to Scott showing that we have peoples with states have a bias and kind of project that onto non-state peoples. And so it's obvious that this is kind of why Rousseau versus Locke and Hobbes crystallizes and opens 
this whole discussion in chapter two, I guess I would say it reminded me of your chapter on Kant in political physics, where Mm -hmm. Kant is going through kind of a similar problem where the state has the right to violence as the founding initiatory violence. And if people start to question that right, it becomes a kind of tricky or it becomes maybe a little bit too, I forget how you, how you phrase it, but there's something about Kant being wary about us asking those questions because it undermines and actually people start to think, well, wait a minute, why does the state (laughs) have the sole right? Right. Doesn't that mean that it's arbitrary or at least contingent and that we can have that power too, right? This, it seems like there's a, there's a similar type of question going on as well in this notion of statification, right? From that you begin your book with from Foucault and this question about the founding violence, the originary violence, it's like content expression. It comes together with the secondary violence. uh, And you lay that out very nicely in the Scott chapter, which you kind of point out his complementarity with a lot of the theses of Deleuze and Guattari on the apparatus chapter, primitive accumulation. But you also point out some of his uniquenesses that would be one of the next steps is the key role that Scott plays for you, because you do give him pride of place in your work. And it's that chapter was very compelling and it makes me <laughs> regret not having read him yet. But uh, do you want to say a little bit about how you see Scott giving some clues, at least not just with the and Guattari and bolstering their arguments, but how do you see uh, Scott taking up the thread that you, you just laid down for us? A couple of things to say. I mean, the previous discussion about the criticisms of the thesis of widespread pre-state warfare is set in a zone in which you have bands of egalitarian forger bands. Mm-hmm. There's lots of evidence that, in this is where Graeber and Wengro will talk about. So for a long, long time, hundreds of thousands of years, we had that situation as far as we can tell. But there is quite a bit of plural options such that it's not just nomadic hunters and gatherers Mm -hmm. and settled sedentary urban states. Right. And so there's a field of, so if you put it in an evolutionary terms, these would be intermediate social formations, among them being the kind of sedentary horticulturalists who were actually probably the social form that Clastra studied mm-hmm. in the Amazonian native peoples. So they aren't, he called them primitive. So there's this mm-hmm. distinction between the egalitarian foragers, nomadic foragers, sedentary, chiefdom-led, mm-hmm. but non-state folks, and then states. And there's lots of ways. So what Scott does nicely is to show that by reading the current literature on the origin of agriculture and its relation to states shows that there's a number of options available. So Mm -hmm. there are some cases where people could be nomadic part of the time, but they would settle down seasonally, for instance. Then there's uh, ways in which you could have the kind of egalitarian sedentarism. So we tend to identify ever since great 20th century 
anthropologist uh, V. Gordon Child, even though he himself doesn't give a kind of time scale, it does seem that there was like a Neolithic revolution. And then all of a sudden, right. in anthropological terms, we have cities and states. Scott wants to break that apart, disperse it as a kind of set of options, and uh, shows ways in which states, although the state form tends to be a very effective and gets replicated a lot, individual states fall apart quite a bit as well. So another area that's in theories of origins of the state geographic constriction plays a major role. So in a kind of valley situation, Mm -hmm. if one chiefdom sets up a kind of rivalry with others and starts sliding towards more and more of a state form in which it's able to specialize its military force and able to create a, a gap between its productive force and its enforcement force, that that becomes very difficult for other autonomous villages or sedentary forms in the same valley to resist. You can be able to march your infantry in the valley. So some arguments about the origin of state look to this kind of circumscription, territorial circumscription. I think the guy's name is Carnero. It was a very famous article in 1970. So that's, but then that just sets up what Scott says then that, well, then in the hills, people can run for the hills. Right. Literally. <laughs> and then once I... But as he says, it's obviously not just hills. You can also run for the swamps. Mm -hmm, I live in Louisiana. So in Louisiana and in Florida, escaped enslaved people would head for the swamps. But wherever the, what Scott calls the friction of terrain is such that it would inhibit efficient capturing of fugitive enslaved people, then that would tend to set up this non-state this is the problem. This is where Deleuze and Guattari, I think, are, are really good. Tendencies towards non-state living tend to occur in places where it's hard to track, mm-hmm. uh, which can be uh, hills and swamps. But nowadays, you know, urban settings can have this kind of marginality where the cops really don't go in. And so it's kind yeah. of... Yeah. I was thinking about this Kowloon walled city. Yeah. Old- yeah. I saw that in your notes. That is, uh, I don't know too much about it. I've seen the pictures. It's right. really kind of an <laughs> yeah. amazing uh, thing. But I mean, more prosaically, what, what right. people call no no go zones, mm-hmm. you know, where the the cops don't so it's go in, so you can see a, a kind of uh, that gets you back to the uh, kind of you know the state as enforcement racket. Yeah. You know? So what they call taxes is. From the state perspective, what they justify as taxes for the services the state provides are what they denigrate as tribute or bribery that you pay to gangs and mafias. Right. right. I keep saying, like, for me, of course, yeah, I'd rather pay taxes <laughs> than pay off the mobster. But you can achieve a, posi- <coughs> a, a abstract enough position that sees that, uh, again, there's a, a famous article, I think it's called The State as Enforcement Racket. So that gets back to something you had started on, uh, the division between the Originary founding violence and the secondary violence. So that's something I tried to trace in the Kant article way back when. So famously in Derrida, Benjamin piece on uh, that's the divine violence of the mm-hmm. founding of the state that always kind of retreats behind and is rendered invisible by ordinary law enforcement and its violence. So what Kant would try to do is distinguish between lawful use of force and unlawful use of force, so criminals versus cops, 
But then you've got this, the imposition of the state in the first place is this kind of divine, unquestionable, untouchable form that uh, should not be looked into. And the role of coercion, right, that, that kind of mediates between those two. Yes, I have, I'd have to review that. <laughs> I'd have to review that piece, that, you know, a long, long time ago. 40 years ago, I was at Penn State as a grad student, and a great American philosopher was inv- invited to come, Charles Hartshorn. Mm. It was a process philosopher, whitehead guy, okay. uh, wonderful, great philosopher in his own right. And he was, he was an old guy by the time, and someone during the question and answer said, well, in uh, 1927, after you had studied with Heidegger, you wrote an article in which you said X, Y, Z. And Hartshorn said, you know, I'm a process philosopher, so my considered philosophical position is that was another person, and I'd have to go reread the article, and I probably wouldn't have anything more to say, any more <laughs> insightful thing to say about it than you would. So you should tell me what was in that article. Yeah. I'm not quite at that point with the Kant article, but it was 25 years ago. So I'd have to look up. But yeah, that was a Gavalt, German term for force and violence, it tends to be blended together and I think that it's it's just interesting how the it reminded me a little bit where you when you pose this question between paying taxes or paying off the mob you you end the the chapter on Scott with this notion that one of his theses is state and non-state aren't sort of diametrically opposed right. but in this kind of dialectic and so barbarian hordes or barbarian kind of forces can either they can take over a state and become and kind of do their own state or they can exist alongside and and sort of trade with them or they can what do you call them a, the dark twin or the dark yes, brother something exactly. like this exactly. i thought that that was that was kind of um yeah i mean there, there's thing. a fine line you could say between you know regular raiding and then just saying okay we want we don't need to come out and raid anymore if you pay us tribute well what's the difference between paying tribute versus being raided versus paying taxes so he wants to kind of set up this way in which the move towards regularization of uh, raiding can be preempted by people paying tribute to non-state actors but they can also kind of live on the margins at the edges of um, states by piracy and Mm -hmm. brigandage I don't know what that would be for, you know, land-based piracy. I was on a dissertation defense as the dean's representative a couple of years ago. Uh, people were talking about, and um, the guy was talking about off the coast of Somalia, the piracy stuff. So it, it, it seems that a lot of it, it's not really about the cargo. It's about the investment that the companies have in the sailors. So that's that's what the edge that the pirates have. But it, it's set up to the point now where they just kind of radio in and say, we've got your captain. The captain gets on and says, yeah, they got guns. And then uh, so they wire this funds into the offshore bank account and the pirates let the crew go because nobody cares about a container full of color TVs. Right. <laughs> They want right. the cash. And so apparently that's built into some of the shipping companies' uh, business <laughs> plans now. Wow. And so they prefer that to mm-hmm. Wild West Cowboy Navy rescues, in which the Navy's going to swoop in with guns and get rid of these pirates. And the shipping company is like, no, no, we, we got it. We got insurance for this, right? Just let us pay these guys and let us get our crew back because that's what they want is the expertise of the crew, not the mm, stuff gotcha. that's in the outside. I don't know if I'm half remembering this correctly or not. 
was a while ago, but that's the kind of story I, I got from it. So that that way of imposing a cost on international flows of shipping is something that you can see wherever a uh, state-supported trade has to pass through non-state zones. They've set up a stock exchange for the pirates in Somalia. Okay, so I'm not imagining this at all. <laughs> no, no, it's a real thing. Oh, wow. I've just been seeing articles over the last couple of days about this, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been a, a number. Well, going back to looks like 2019, there's been 2015 <laughs> or so. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So uh, Scott is is wants to achieve an amoral look at costs and benefits of statification and the conditions of possibility for them. And among them, he has this whole big emphasis on geography and territories that lend themselves to state surveillance, planning, taxation, so on and so forth. Now, as we reach further and further into a world of satellite surveillance, drones, and air power, the ability to hide in the woods or the mountains or the uh, or the hills becomes less powerful than it was earlier. So there, I think you end up then wanting to look at organizations marginal to states like international corporations, criminal organizations, <coughs> all those things that Deleuze and Guattari call the ecumenical organizations in uh, Thousand Plateaus. Uh, so there you would get, uh, I think we have a kind of popular culture investigation on that in, in something like S.H.I.E.L.D. in the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, they're kind of government-ish, but uh, I guess they are sort of part of the U.S. government. I'm not really sure where she, what the ontology of S.H.I.E.L.D. is, but they are these kind of uh, marginal figures there. So that would be one of the things that as the physical ability to establish non-state zones becomes harder and harder, then you end up more becoming imperceptible, as right. I say, and blending in so that you're part of the crowd. And that way you can kind of be marginal to state control that way. But yeah, we've got a whole huge financial, international financial network that hides from states. I mean, mm-hmm. the Panama Papers and the, I think I'm behind the times, wasn't there a new release of uh, things about the shadow banking and the, yeah, uh, there the was, amount of yeah. money that, that goes through there? Not the Panama Papers, but some other. Yeah, uh, there was another moniker, I don't recall. Yeah. So there you kind of hide in the, hide in the, uh, in the web, mm-hmm. in the net. Which is also that that also shows up in in some of the Marvel uh, movies. I think Ultron was <laughs> hid himself in the web, but we get, we have the sense of that in the interstices of, of the web, the dark web, you can get ways to escape state control. Lord knows, I have pulled up a few PDFs on the internet that have escaped <laughs> the state-backed copyrights of uh, publishing companies. Oh, you barbarian, John. Yeah, exactly. guilty, guilty as charged. <laughs> rating, the, rating the caches of uh, rating rich, the commons. Uh, of rich <laughs> The digital yeah. commons, right? Yeah, exactly. The digital commons, yeah. So that was the, uh, what was that one called? Arg? Yes, Arg. 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 Yeah, so I, I think that that's... Um, they pop up now and again. And uh, actually, what is the legal status of Libcom? Because they have got a lot of lefty commie stuff. I don't know what if they yeah. obey copyright or not. Lib- I'm not even sure. I mean, I know yeah. that you know for, Libcom, right? I don't use that one as much. I have used a lot of um, the Anarchist Sci-Hub. Library. Anarchist and- Library is one that mm-hmm. I've used mm-hmm. that I think is more similar to Libcom. And I know that there are copyrighted. You know, I know Sterner's unique in its properties on there. Among other texts, so 
I'm sure he would be all for that. Oh, you yeah, know, of course. Like steal this book or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, you know, steal this. It's interesting that, that we're looking ahead and not to not to abbreviate the work in between, but I, I really wanted to ask this so we can circle back to a lot of the stuff that you've given sort of the overview of the book. But you you have this. I don't know if you would call it a categorical imperative or if you would call it a strong suggestion, but I wanted to get your your thoughts on this and the formulation of it because you do front load it in the introduction and you circle back to it at the end, but it's, I wrote it out, act such that you nurture the capacity to enact repeatable active joyous encounters of positive sympathetic care and fair cooperation for self and others without qualification. I wanted you to speak a little bit about this as a, maybe not a prescription, but a positive kind of. Yeah, it's a, it's a normative yeah. standard. I think it's the act such that is a, I don't know if it's a parody of Kant's, but it's, <laughs> it's a, a, a pastiche. An, an, an echo, a pastiche. Mm, yeah. yeah. So I, I tried to get, you know, what a, what a war machine or a, mm-hmm. a group subject would be like in its effective relationship among its, its folks. So that's then I would often teach it as a kind of way well, you have to empower the empowering capacities of other people. That would be the rhizome kind of thing. But then mm-hmm. I wanted to build in, I have to make it active and joyous. Mm-hmm. No, I have to make it active in the spinosis sense, mm-hmm. because otherwise you can get a lot of passive joy by being dominated by transcendental or transcendent signifiers, such that you're, you know, you're wearing your MAGA hats, and mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not just that. I mean, I, there's plenty of uh, people who's still litigating the 2016 Democratic um, primary, you know, yelling at each other about who's a Bernie bro and who's a Hillbot. So there's lots of ways in which uh, all sorts of people, obviously from my personal background, I'm more attuned to the way in which, you know, MAGA folks are subordinating themselves to the passive joy of owning the libs and being demonstrating their enlistment in this um, in the uh, the Red Hat Brigade. But so I, I, I wanted to take a distance from that and say we have to be active joyous. So there's some yes. Spinoza in there too. Then the positive sympathetic care, I wanted to look back to some of the evolutionary and also the some of the feminist stuff. So I looked at the uh, Sarah Hardy mm-hmm. has some uh, stuff on uh, collaborative breeding and there's a number of other folks. I'm, right now I'm going to be reading a uh, work in the field of relational autonomy. Okay. Try to see whether I can add that to the mix as well. And then Something else. And the without qualification was trying to deal with uh, disability folks because you, you, you don't want to. Whenever you have a content full human nature argument, you're going to get these you know marginal cases where people can be pushed aside. It's a kind of, I don't want to say a guilty conscience, but when I read my Shiavo chapter again, it's pretty hardcore. So I, I, I don't know whether what I would say about where to go back to the Terry Schiavo chapter and political affect, whether the mm-hmm. without qualifications thing would hold up. But yeah, it's kind of a normative standard because people keep saying, what's Deleuze and Guattari's normative standard? They don't right. have a political program. Well, it's got to be hidden in something of what they say, how a subject works rather than mm-hmm. a, uh, a group subject. 
whether a, a subject group is the bad one, <laughs> the group subject, I think, right? Well, there's subject groups and then there's subjugated groups, but they, they I mean, Guattari subject does, groups, yes. Yeah, yeah, Guattari also talks about group subjects, but, you know, I, right. I think that's what you meant, right? The, yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. Well, well, the predecessor to the war machine idea, where okay. people yeah. have a kind of horizontal relations. So I actually read a really nice book a couple months ago by Rodrigo Nunez called mm-hmm. Neither Horizontal Nor Vertical. And he actually digs into some really good stuff about uh, organization. And so it's, it can't just be pure horizontalism either. And sometimes Deleuze can be read that way with the flat ontology. Right. And it's all right. horizontal. Although I think that that's maybe more true of uh, difference repetition, whereas logic of sense, you know, well, that's not, I mean, it's the intensity and depth are in communication. So it is, it's a question of if you read univocity as, as pure horizontality and, mm-hmm. and then we're kind of, then, then we actually need some Derrida to get us to pick apart these metaphors, right? <laughs> I mean, Coop, did you, uh, I just wanted to make sure, cause you have some stuff here. Did you, did you want to chime in about anything we've been discussing? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much, but I think in particular, one of the most interesting things, and I, I know you both saw my notes relative to Potlatch as, because uh, when we had, uh, to when Taylor and I had gone through most through the gift, um, mm-hmm. that's kind of one of the ideas I had. Okay, this is a way of sort of mitigating, it's a strategy to mitigate, I guess, death or, you know what I mean? It's a sort of a way of virtualizing conflict is how I described it in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, without, it's kind of like that, almost like the ritual warfare right? The ritualization that sort of the stakes aren't quite so high, but you can still sort of, I guess, mediate those, uh, I guess, libidinal investments or like Mm -hmm. desires, et cetera, emotions, emotional states, intensities, all that kind of thing that I thought was interesting. But the little line here, and you talked about this a bit, was the way in which taxation is a sort of similar thing. It's almost a domesticated form of plundering (laughs) <laughs> which I thought was kind of a cool, because you give the example of hunting cats and dogs, for example, or like some type of domesticated animal, right? Like there's, what is it like hair courting or something like that in, um, or like fox and fox hunting in Britain, et cetera, mm-hmm. is a sort of similar kind of, it's not a real hunt, right? It's not this uh, yes. pre-social or, you know, it's not hunting and gathering. It's kind of this, I guess. Simulated hunt? Right. Yeah, yeah. Literally simulation and I think that sort of gets dis- disentangled over time, but sort of an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, that's something I need to actually work more on the the potlatch. And uh, but I, I think that sounds right. It's a competition, one-upsmanship, trying to waste uh, surplus. I mean, mm-hmm. to, yeah, the, the easy connection with Dulles Grotari on building on Bataille is that mm-hmm. to have scarcity, you have to waste, you have to create artificial scarcity. The way to mm-hmm. do that is you have to waste surplus uh, rather than distribute it. So that's, uh, so you get, you know, massive overconsumption feasts uh, or you get magnificent uh, uh, sumptuary expenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, pyramids and monumental architecture and uh, so on and so forth. So today, I guess we have the military budget. That's true. <laughs> Another uh, angle that I wanted to bring up, unless you had more to, to elocute there, John. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was going to ask if you were had any familiarity or had looked at Gobekli Tepe, just because that site, and if you're not familiar with it, it's in southern Turkey, and they've traced it. I want to say it's something like dated between eight and 10,000 BC, but mm-hmm. 
So we're talking Neolithic era, but they have these giant stone monuments that were carved, handmade stone tools, basically. And there's evidence that they, it's theorized that state forms could, or a more complex, I guess, settling or partially settling sort of group social uh, arrangement could have developed there as part of these groups coming together, basically to feast in these sort of potlatches at this specific site. So different clans, et cetera, all coming together. There's a theory that they found these sort of cauldrons that perhaps might have had beer residue. And so they were thinking that perhaps, okay, so the development, the only way they could sort of go through producing enough of this surplus to have these feasts was to have a more sedentary social reformation, at least part of the year. I think I remember reading about that and and that's, but it was kind of, there did not seem to be great income inequalities in the, Mm, in mm. in the, it's an urban situation, but without a big hierarchical difference. Well, it was more like a, if I'm correct, Gobekli Tepe was more of a ceremonial site. So not exactly like a Stonehenge, but sort of a similar sort of, yeah, it's a, a sort of place to host these, yeah. You would almost have to speculate they'd be huge pot these sort of feasts that you know we're just talking right. about relative to potlatch. Yeah. Maybe like a neutral meeting site or a neutral way. And and as John was saying, maybe this this way of pooling surpluses so that they could be um I guess the distribution would be precisely in the consumption of that excess. Right. And so it it does stand to yeah. reason that perhaps it was also non-hierarchical. You yeah, know, but, and it is a it is kind of a wall, one of the first walled cities, but it's not a city in the sense that city. we think of it today, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, it's just a walled neutral gathering celebratory site. Yeah. It's it's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, it would probably be more like a religious site or like yeah. tem- temple. Cool. I guess a sort of primitive or yeah version of that. Well, there'd be another example of kind of breaking apart what the Neolithic Revolution thing, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. said that monumental architecture temples, the kind of priest-warrior caste raising itself above the productive class and states writing law, so on and so forth, armies, expansion, all went together. They can all go together once they kind of coalesce, and then you do get the the classic state form. It's not Mm -hmm. that that never happens, but the pieces of them are more modular than uh, you would be led to believe. Mm than people used to think. So I think that's the way I'm, I'm reading um, Scott. And I believe that's the thesis with Graeber and Wengro mm. is that there is, are a lot more hybrid positions other than nomadic egalitarian foragers, sedentary right, yeah. chief-led horticulturalists, and agricultural states. There's a number of ways that those things can kind of mix and match, which I think is a kind of Deleuze and Guattari in abstract machine. So mm-hmm. you get lots mm-hmm. of these different machining assemblages coming off, coming out of them. But it's it's more like there's a, a space of uh, choice or option rather than some sort of uh, linear evolution. What I think is interesting about that is that then it, it helps us to think that when Deleuze seems to create a binary like the nomadic and the sedentary right. that that there is more fluctuation in it and it's not like he he ever says that they are exact opposites he takes them kind of as limit cases right as limit, as, limits as, of tendencies yeah. yes right and that was interesting because that's how you uh you said that at least a few times in your work that really uh helped me to think through okay gotta gotta stop 
treating these as diametrical opposites right. and think of them as these limit cases. You even talk about, right. you do this with your three examples of kind of social bonding over with emotions, right? You have the notion of emotional contagion, empathy, and sympathy, and you kind of say pure sympathy is a limit case, right? There's, it's always kind right. of, there's always going to be a mixture. Yeah. Um, and although I didn't define those terms, I just, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting because it goes back into this question about the evolution of altruism, mm -hmm. which I think is fascinating as, as your starting point. Yeah, I mean, well, that's a whole side issue in the at the intersection of uh, cognitive science, philosophy of mind, and mm -hmm. phenomenology. But I do think that the phenomenologists are correct that most of the time you don't need a theory of mind. That mm -hmm. is, I don't need to read someone's behavior and then infer what the hidden mental causes are of that right. behavior. Most of the time we're in kind of social scripts and it's pretty obvious what somebody's thinking or feeling or acting and so on and so forth. Private detectives cracking a murder mystery or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. people at the poker table trying to see whether someone's bluffing or is that a tell or not. Yeah, they need a theory of mind, but most of the time <laughs> we don't. We, we kind of have emotional episodes that occur between people. So it's it's not that the emotions occur inside your head. They're they're written on the, they're written on your face, <laughs> mm -hmm, yeah. and they're picked up on by other people. So they kind of occur in the uh, intersection of intersubjectivity. Emotional contagion is you know when babies start crying and all the babies start crying. <laughs> and sympathy and empathy it depends on how you do it. Sympathy you're sharing the other person's emotional state. Empathy you're understanding why they're in that emotional state. Right. And you are inclined to want to help them, either to increase their joy or to provide solace for their pain. But yeah, I, I think in any uh, in any concrete situation, you're going to be feeling, if you're in the presence of someone who is happy, then you're going to have a little bit of happiness yourself. So it's not that I purely understand that this person's happy, it's I'm also happy. So the empathy-sympathy thing is, is uh, never that clear cut. I, there's a whole literature on this, but emotional contagion is an interesting thing with crowd crowd behaviors and crowd right. affects. I was recently reading some um, Gabrielle Tard, who at the turn of the century, there was uh, Tard, Durkheim, and Gustave Le Bon. And so there was a lot of stuff about um, crowd behavior, how to properly interpret that. But um, I'll need to... Uh, continue on with that with that research as well i think that there's some some really interesting uh stuff there with uh the kind of fields of imitation and mm -hmm. uh, innovant innovation so that's Deleuze mentions tard in uh difference in repetition and then again in thousand plateaus mm, yep so it's been on my radar for a long time and i finally started to go back uh into it um but versus the Gustave Le Bon stuff on the crowd where it's associated with women and primitives and children. And he reads it much more in terms, of, I think, of emotional contagion, waves of affect. But it's not, it's, I mean, if you look at sports, I don't know why live sports are fun. It's, right. You do have shared affect in sports crowds, I think. So th th there's need for more, you know, research there as well. Uh, that's something I'll, I'll try to look at. I've been a sports fan my whole life, so. I didn't even think about that in terms of potlatch, but yeah, that's a very 
much a modern version of potlatch would be something like an i mean particularly something like an nfl or college football game in particular right because it's yeah. I mean, it's sort of this young warrior yeah there, there right? was there was a old book i read a long time ago which said that sport was uh territories involved obviously right yeah. particularly mm-hmm. yeah well, some some sports are, are territorial but yeah but that would be um it's called the ritual sacrifice of excess energy mm. so there's uh because it has to be it has to be non-utilitarian, although people make money off of it. Uh, <laughs> there's something about the spectacle and the, and the joy and the camaraderie that makes people willing to pay money to be part of it. Right. Yeah. Right. Desire for I don't know both the negative and the positive emotions yeah. of loss yeah. and like shame. Yeah, I guess shame for your when your team's loses. Like you, I've heard well, if they lose research, shamefully. Yeah, well, they can because they, you know, yeah, they can quit and they can give up. <laughs> I've heard research that actually will impact the spectator if their team loses, sure. like their self-esteem or something like that. Oh yeah, no, I was, I was horrified. <laughs> at, yeah, at the at the way the Sixers lost to Atlanta in the, in the spring. <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> no, I'm happy. Well, Sixers you know, you know, Taylor lives in Atlanta, right? Oh well, <laughs> that's the funny. Thing. I'm I'm more of a Although baseball fan. Yeah, he doesn't. I'm a baseball fan, so you can you can leave me out of that one. <laughs> <laughs> and the Hawks aren't doing that great, so uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Not too sure. Yeah. Or no, the Falcons. I, I, yeah, there's a there's a nice book by Aaron Tarver called the the Eye in Team, and she mm. looks at sports fan uh, sports fandom as a um, subjectification practice. Mm. Foucaultian terms, but looks at race and, and, and gender, and it's really good. Mascots and all sorts of things. Yeah. I took a course on the sociology of sport. Okay, cool. In my undergrad, but yeah. I think I don't remember much. Of it. <laughs> it's no, so it's a big field. I mean, obviously, we spend lots of money on it, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of libidinal investments uh, mm-hmm. to use to, to listen to Guattari's terms towards it. So, uh, Speaking of LSU, with you just hiring, they just hired Brian Kelly for the yeah. coach, if I'm not mistaken. Speaking yeah. of, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean that's uh, LSU is officially one of the football programs that makes money, mm-hmm. but I believe that there's some tricky accounting going on oh, yeah, in I'm that. Sure. <laughs> a lot of the, um, at least I would like to investigate whether or not, <laughs> let's say the events management stuff isn't a kind of donation in kind by the mm. university as a whole. You know, like there's a lot of traffic cops when there's a LSU football game. Mm. So I don't know who's paying them. If the <laughs> university is paying them, then you can shield the ticket revenue and the thing might might look like it's making more money than it actually is were they to have to have to uh, support their own traffic management for instance i don't know that maybe maybe that that's part that's I, I i haven't looked at the accounting for it but they claim to make money off of it but. We're, we're getting back to the racketeering stuff yeah i mean that's another whole fascinating angle to this that i thought was really interesting how there could be this sort of dual evolution i guess you know capture of that practice of protection racketing or racketeering mm-hmm. being a potential genesis or part of the genesis of the state form. Right. It's fascinating. Yeah. One of those uh, claims that Scott made that you put forth so eloquently that kind of blew my mind and I'm still trying to mull it over. You've kind of talked about how he, he wants to not see the Neolithic revolution as monolithic, right. And, and, mm-hmm. and to, to open it up. And one of the things that you said 
clearly was that you can have these different varieties of sedentarism or agriculture without having states, but you can't have a state without having a sort of uh, one, I forget how, a monoculture of grain. It has to be like one, well, I, because I, that's um, how taxes work, is paying in, in one yeah. form of grain. Yeah, he has this really interesting stuff about tubers versus grain. Mm -hmm. So like folks, you know, maroon folks who run away up into the hills will get a lot of carbs from underground tubers, which are invisible to the state. One of his earlier books was called Seeing Like a State, and he means it literally. You have to survey. And so grains Mm -hmm. are great because they're above ground. They can Mm -hmm. be taxed. You can measure the amount of of, uh, output per acre. And this and that. Does he think it's necessary? I think you could probably have a state if there were a reliable, visible food source. Mm-hmm. But historically and empirically speaking, lots of them have been grain agriculture, the early states. Could you have a state in which the food source was fish, but it was so reliable and so sedentary and so visible that it could be tracked and uh, taxed? I think so. It just so happens that, possibly it just so happened that, grains fit those requirements very well. Gotcha. Visible, stackable, measurable, so on and so forth. But I, you could, I think you could probably do something like, as long as the, the, the food source was um, easily comparable. It's about the abstractness of the, of the quantity, right? That's, yeah, yeah. that's, as, yeah. as a flow, yeah. you know, as Deleuze and Guattari might say. That's, yeah. that's what I would, that's what I would say. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think in point of fact, the early states, Scott points out that they're all, you know, grain states. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and Graeber points that out in Dead at least spends mm-hmm. a little bit of time on it when he looks at some of the earliest that we know about mm-hmm. uh, in Mesopotamia, that one of the ways that debt becomes payable is with these with these grain, with basically more or less, you know, you're paying off your debt by working the land and, mm-hmm. and contributing grain to the temples, which right. goes into... One of the things that I wanted to ask you about, which is this notion of the domus and the right. and the niche con- the niche construction, which right. is right. the sort of pre- the necessary precondition for hierarchy for for an elite to uh, to establish itself. One of the necessary elements for a state, presumably. That's a kind of settlement where you've got uh, you're going to get domesticated animals. Mm-hmm. You're going to get some gardening, at least some horticulture. And so that brings a lot of folks together. You might get some disciplining, as he says. We're talking about Huxley and Kropotkin. And mm-hmm. I found that a, a fascinating way to, to end, you know, to, to keep me thinking about your book <laughs> after I was done reading. Yeah, well, definitely, I, because he's often, Kropotkin at least is kind of seen as a sort of idealist versus right. I think Huxley, I don't know, seems a bit more. The bulldog. Huxley right. seems like more of a libidinal materialist to me. Well, he's kind of dogmatic too, though, to a certain extent. I um I teach in that in the um, evolution of biology and morality class. I teach an article by Stephen Jay Gould called "Kropotkin Was No Crackpot," <laughs> and uh, it's really great. It's really nice, really nice piece. So I have notes on that uh, on the uh, coursework materials page mm-hmm. of my website. Okay. Taylor uh, Kropotkin was a was a prince actually, and mm-hmm. he gave up his title 
and then he became a scientist. Okay. He was in like the Royal Academy of Science or some shit for Russia under the wow. Tsar. He was something like a the Tsar's distant cousin or something like that. So well, he I was still considered a prince or something like that at some point. I can definitely check out John's uh, notes, which you have your own website. I know that you have all kinds of materials there, and I, I'll, I'll definitely check that out. But Coop, you, you wanted to ask a, a kind of wrap-up question or one of the things that, that really intrigued you. I've been focusing a lot in our, our deep dives into this sort of anthropological discussion about kind of the concept, the in-group, out-group concept, scapegoating. That's been a big thing mm-hmm. of mine, trying to determine, is this is this a necessary component of the social formation, et cetera? So I really thought this was a interesting where you discussed the gradient, like pro-sociality, the gradient and how that gradient is always going to be slightly tipped in favor of what's considered the in-group. I don't know if you can elaborate more broadly on on that aspect of the... the yeah, well, there's, there's a couple of things. I mean, one of the discussions about some of the... To look at pre-state forger society is always very tricky because there aren't really any non-state... There aren't any people who have never been in contact with states. Right. Right. There's no pure nomads. Or- exactly. So that's a very difficult thing. So the contemporary ethnography is never going to run across right. anybody who was doing And we don't know what also what difference it would have been when there's a much larger geographical expanse that people can go to. Can flee um, to, yeah. You know, whenever there's a uh, conflict, one thing is always just to move, right? But you can't really move if you're the next valley over is some some big city or state or something. So there's a number of, of difficult questions involved with how can you actually kind of triangulate back to pre-state society. But nonetheless, some of the things that people talk about with regard to contemporary ethnography is that the, the bands always tend to be in in kind of larger amorphous groups and the the movement between bands doesn't really look as as much like our notion of moving between carefully defined and strictly enforced social groups it's more like you want to hang out with these other people hook up with this uh, other group often because you know we're really talking about foot about walking so you can't really walk far enough <laughs> to find some completely other society right you're always right. going to be kind of bumping into somebody who knows something now it could be that you take off on on a line of flight and you really travel a long way but lots of folks it seems just kind of move move in and around and you're always going to know someone who's the uncle of somebody who used to go fishing with your grandfather and, and that kind of thing that's one thing to say that uh, when we talk about in-group and out-group and we talk about cultural difference and cultural conflict, often that's when we've had uh, technological advances uh, mm. in travel and transport mm. that enable us to bump into people from really far away. So that's something to keep in mind. Then um, the in contemporary multicultural societies uh, like like ours, I mean, there's I think there's kind of shifting, lots of shifting in groups and out groups, right? So you could both be two New Yorkers, but one's a Jets fan and one's a Giants fan, mm-hmm. but they're both Knicks fans, right? So when a Sixers <laughs> fan shows up, you know, so I, I think there's lots of shifting right. relations that you can inscribe yourself in one group or another group in our kinds of societies as well. Nonetheless, there is evidence that 
people tend to hold violations of social norms. They tend to want to punish out-group people more than in-group people who are kind of forgiving, forgivable for what they've done. Obviously, we have big you know, racial uh, and uh, ethnic divisions and uh, lines that we all know about in American society. But yeah, there does seem to be this. It takes a long time to actually this to go to finish up. Phenomenologists will often describe our interactions with another or an alter ego or something like that. And I've always thought that that's a kind of achievement, you know, in our society because I, I don't see an other person. I see, you know, a white guy or a black guy. You know, it's a race just jumps out at us uh, being raised in America so much. You know, it's just an, uh, an Asian guy or or a, someone who has uh, a couple different ethnic uh, ethnic groups. So it's kind of an achievement to be able to approach someone as a, another human being mm-hmm. with humanity as our as kind of cosmopolitan horizon versus any, any of the shorter, smaller, more parochial in-groups. I mean, I can be half-jokingly, but and certainly I hope that it would never impinge on any kind of morally important category, but I could imagine giving precedence to an LSU fan over an Alabama fan mm-hmm, if it was mm-hmm. a matter of uh, who got to sit at the last seat on the on the bar. You know, right. So I'm not kicking the Alabama fan out into the cold. I'm right. just saying you can't have this seat. <laughs> Those kind of things. I mean, so the, that that I hope that we could overcome those when it's a you know a morally important uh, factor. But yeah, I mean, Bergson talks about the saint as the one who's able to overcome closed society and be able to deal with, uh, you know, all of humanity as the horizon. And that does seem to be uh, a, um, there certainly does seem to be that kind of uh, gradient there. Now, when I do talk about pro-sociality, I do want to emphasize that it doesn't mean niceness. It means intellectual and affective commitment to the social patterns you were raised in, which can be negative affects. Mm -hmm. You can want to destroy these things. It's just that it's very rare that people are not going, are going to be left pulled by these questions of social patterns. I mean, some of them, yes or no, but as we know, we can be completely, you know, really emotionally invested in a lot of different things. I'm always struck by the emotional investment people have put into masks, but I mean, I can't tell somebody where to put their libidinal investment, but we can analyze how it how that is shaped and the master, I don't want to say manipulators, but the people who are able to tap into those flows of emotional or libidinal investment and direct them mm-hmm. towards, towards particular patterns, those are master politicians. Mm-hmm. You know, so Trump was able is able to, to do that kind of thing. He has this genius for dividing people. And so he glommed onto masks. Oddly enough, he's actually pro-vaccine, if you listen yeah. to what he says. That, that, that came out recently, yeah. But, I mean, he obviously he's not consistent with it and doesn't say it a lot and so on and so forth. But if you ask him, I mean, he says, oh, yeah, well, because it was his idea. Right, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yes, <so> that's, <laughs> that's right. That's but still, right. He, his investment. <laughs> yeah, he's literally. In himself. <laughs> yeah, he's literally. Well, yeah, that's narcissism. But he, he, is, he is pro-vaccine. Which is, uh, it's a whole nother story about why people are anti-vax. And In group out. Vax right? hesitance. <laughs> but you do get, there's a hardcore anti-vaxxer, which I think has to be distinguished from people who are vaccine hesitant mm-hmm. with regard to the COVID vaccine and or who, for instance, have practical 
difficulties in getting to the testing site or the vac yes. site who don't want to take the risk of having a day or two uh, oh i you know i had a moderna and i had a you know a couple uh, a day or two where i didn't feel myself well right. if i'm working yep. paycheck to paycheck at walmart and could get fired if i don't show up that's a not unreasonable it's not completely unreasonable way to be vaccine hesitant. So yeah. I think we have to distinguish kind of hardcore anti-vaxxers who really have that central to their personal identity and more practically oriented, you know, adventitious hesitancy about COVID in particular. That conjoined with, with the state of healthcare and, and the hesitancy yeah. towards it in America, you know, if we're talking about Americans in particular, that is wrapped up in it that complicates yeah. Infinitely. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, if someone is afraid of getting a bill from, from from their vaccine, that's also not irrational either. Yeah, yeah, they say it's free, but there's a lot of ways in which the, uh, I mean, I, again, me as a you know, middle-class white guy, college professor, uh, I have a, as good relation to the American technical health establishment as as. I have a good relationship to it. You know, I know my doctors. I have my same doctors. I don't have to fear going bankrupt if I go to my doctors. I have good insurance, so on and so forth. I certainly know that that's not the case. A lot of people don't want to go to the doctor because they get yelled at for your, you know, their bad uh, health practices or whatever, right? So they have this completely negative relationship to the medical establishment. So those are separate from, I think, kind of hardcore anti-vaxxers who sometimes are have this kind of uh, new age thing, but all, even them, just a tangent, I, I don't know if it'll make it into the uh, podcast or not, but there's a nice book called Vaccine Hesitancy by Maya mm. Goldberg. And um, even there, there's a kind of thing that we're all made individually responsible for our own right. health care. Right. Constantly told, you know, ask your doctor if this is good for you or whatever. Yes, so it's yes. all about your individual and we also have this way in which all of our children are individual singular creatures and we're responsible for them there's mm -hmm. a whole weird thing about ownership of children too but we're responsible for them and so it's at least plausible or understandable how some people become not anti-vaxxer but i don't want my kids to be vaxxed mm -hmm. there are real hardcore anti-vaxxers who think that vaccines are horrible for everybody right but then there's the other people who kind of say well yeah but my you know johnny had asthma when he was three yeah. and they have a whole thing and you're responsible for it right so there is a kind of way in which you could reconstruct some kind of cost-benefit analysis whereby you would think that you know it's kind of not worth it for me even though i think that it's okay for everybody else so even the our demonized anti-vaxxers are a complex mix of uh, rationality and pro-social investment in their uh, identities. I guess I, my last question is a very kind of simple one. Oh, I mean, it's it could be open-ended, but I wanted to end with uh, reflecting one more time on your uh, your maxim, I'll call it, right? The, uh -huh. And I'll say it once more for the, I really like it. I think it's very important. Acts such that you nurture the capacity to enact repeatable, active, joyous encounters with positive, sympathetic care and fair cooperation for self and others without qualification. You mentioned the Spinozist aspect to it, mm -hmm. but there's also a way in which you satisfy a kind of Nietzscheanism or a Nietzschean aspect that Deleuze, you know, draws upon. If, if, if Deleuze has the, you know, if he's the thinker of affirmation, he draws as much from Nietzsche as Spinoza. And what I, the reason why I point that out 
is Nietzsche is so much of his work, at least in his middle period, is tackling this question of egoism and altruism and kind of turning them inside out. And I don't want to say it's a dialectic, but he's, he's struggling with if every altruistic action is not at base, a kind of self-satisfying egoism. And the way you frame your maxim is such a way that it avoids the, it avoids a lot of that reductionism or that, or that hesitancy that Nietzsche has. And I guess I really, that's part of it that I really appreciate it. So it's less a question and more of just kind of my way of of grappling with with what you wrote there. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, no, I, I actually need to. If I do ever write this big anthropology and philosophy book, uh, mm-hmm. I, I should certainly have a chapter on Nietzsche in there, on the genealogy of morals, mm-hmm. at least. Yeah. But there's uh, there's other uh, stuff that I uh, would need to really would need to review. But um, yeah, I, I, mean, I think I do know the genealogy fairly well, and I could write something about that. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned it. You mentioned Graeber's little yeah, <laughs> his, yeah, no, that's his, his gripe, right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, wonderful. Yeah, that's a wonderful uh, bit in in uh, debt. Well, John, uh, it is getting later, and yeah. we we do appreciate you uh, good in your time. We I appreciate your work. I do hope that after you retire, if you have the desire to, I hope you do keep writing, and uh, especially on this topic, it's it's one that Cooper and I are extremely interested in and so you know we're i'd eat it up we are your guinea pigs we're, we're yeah. like your target audience good so, good yes, good absolutely very yeah. much enjoyed the book uh edges yeah. for sure like i said right up our alley in terms of the discussions we've been having cool. yeah. loved having you today thanks so much for yeah. spending your afternoon with us okay very much very much enjoyed it thank you guys i appreciate the invitation honored honored and i will right. let you know as soon as uh as soon as the episode is edited and, and yeah. ready for uh ready for yes, air sir Perfect. Okay, great. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, John. All right, guys. Thanks. Have See a great night. Day. Cheers. Cheers. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is